At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. Well, good morning. It's good to be with all of you here today. My name is Stephen Zerley, one of the pastors at Woodside Bible Church, and so thankful for the opportunity to share God's word with you today. Pastor Jeremy, I think, will be coming back soon, so uh, he, he better be because he and I are actually uh, going to be hiking a mountain here in a few weeks in California together, so um, looking forward to having him back. I'm sure all of you are as well. And uh, just so thankful for him and Stephanie, and I really pray, as I hope you have as well, that this time away for them has been refreshing and restorative, and that they have been uh, just really bound together, both in their relationship and also in their love for Christ together. So if you have not turned there already, please make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we continue our series today, and I'm going to try to get through this content. Uh, There's a lot to talk about today because this scripture really is the primary thesis, the the argument, the proposition of Paul to the Corinthian believers. This is where the whole crux of the issue is really set out before us. And so we're going to dive into that today. Such a relevant message for our church. And so let me pray for us as you're turning there. Father God, thank you for this day. I do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you would have for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've all seen it. Maybe you have the t-shirt, maybe you have the hoodie, maybe you uh, have a child or a grandchild with them, but Detroit versus everybody. Anybody seen that slogan, those t-shirts, that clothing brand before? This is a Detroiter named Tommy Walker. His picture's up here on the screen. He started the clothing brand back in 2012, and the idea popped into his head when he was on a business trip to California. At the time, the city, Detroit, was going through a little bit of a renaissance, but the only story that was capturing national news at the time, of course, were the scandals and corruption surrounding then-Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, if you remember all of this just about 10 years ago. Well, Tommy was frustrated that the dominant narrative being told was that Detroit was a cautionary tale, a once great city, now derelict Dangerous, defunct, and destined for complete irrelevance. But Tommy saw a more complex story, along with so many others uh, from the region. Uh, He saw glimmers of hope, of progress, of change, right alongside all of the gigantic issues of impoverishment and infrastructure and education that really still hinder the city today. So he wanted to remind people of who they were and remind them of who they could be. That Detroit historically was an exporter of culture. This is Motown. This is Motor City. And so Detroit versus everybody, it became a symbol for the come from nothing, knocked down but not out, overcoming, persevering, against all odds mindset that he felt. Ten years later, the brand has exploded. Today, versus everybody has gear for, well, everybody. If you think about it, if you've seen it, it's, it's also gear now for Philly, for LA, for Chicago, for New York, Atlanta, Miami, San Francisco. And that expansion 
It was a great business decision, but it bothered all kinds of people in Detroit because that was our slogan, that was our brand, that was our t-shirt, that was our message. It was like when the Golden State Warriors, who were the, they have been the most successful NBA franchise in the NBA for the last 10 years. All kinds of championships, of course, star power with their players. They're in one of the most expensive communities in the country, and they started selling Oakland versus everybody t-shirts. Well, as, as, they, uh, as fate would actually have it, uh, they, 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 act, they moved out of their Oracle Arena, which was in the city of Oakland, and moved into the brand new Chase Center in Bougie, San Francisco. And they are the opposite of an underdog. They are the favorites. They are the haves. And when they made this move, as you'd expect, some of the residents from Oakland, now they wear that T-shirt, Oakland versus everybody, for completely different reasons. Now it's a way, it's their way of protesting against gentrification and power. So what is it about the us versus them mentality that resonates so deeply with people? Why are we so quick to identify who is with us and who is against us? Who the allies are and who the enemies are? Who the best is and who's just good and who's the worst and who's just okay? I didn't realize that volumes of psychological theories, literally volumes of psychological theories have been written trying to explain why our minds build these categories so naturally and so instantly. Uh, We need to recognize that building us versus them scenarios is not just an interpersonal reality, something that's going on in our minds. It's part of the fabric of the society in which we live. We live in a us versus them world. Why is this the case? Well, the Christian story reminds us that the instant humanity fell into rebellion against God, uh, against his design, Uh, the way of his uh, creation, that division and disharmony, it became natural parts of the world. Our rebellion distorted the nature of God's perfect design and introduced what was unnatural, evil, into the equation. So now because of the impact of sin on God's creation, it's natural for the world to be divided against itself. It's natural to put all of our allegiances On pedestals. It's natural to showcase all of our difference. It's natural to build a culture that exasperates and glorifies our individuality so that we're lifted up and other people are pushed down. Ever since our first parents in the garden, humanity is still crawling and clawing over each other to get to the top. People are still trying to climb up to a throne that was never meant to be theirs. That's the created uh, still attempting to replace the creator. The same story we find from Genesis 3 until today. So the question is, is it even possible to experience unity in a fractured world? That's what the series has been about. Is that even possible? This is exactly the nature of the problem the Apostle Paul addresses to the church of Corinth in the first century. And what Paul wants these Christians to know was that it... Uh, What is natural in the fallen world is unnatural in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as us versus them when it comes to the people of God's kingdom. God's people, that's our main idea this morning, are not divided. That's the spiritual reality. 
So we must set this principle before we dive into our text a little further. The nature of Jesus' ministry is the opposite, we know this, of the world's mentality if you've studied his life at all. The son began his ministry saying in Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And Paul tells us that the good news of the gospel is through repentance and belief, Colossians chapter 1, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus had been arrested by the Jews and handed over to Pilate, the Roman governor, Jesus said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And now those who are part of his spiritual kingdom through faith who've received repentance or who have received salvation through repentance and belief he says that we are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord so the spiritual reality is that the church which is all those in every place who have given their life to Jesus Christ through faith, the church is not divided. It might seem like it is sometimes. It might appear that way, but there really is only one people of God. We've put away what is natural to the world, and we've taken on a new nature as the people of Christ. But in the Corinthian church, like in every church, it's so easy to slide right back into the way of the world, the unnatural way of God's creation, the natural way of the world. And when we do, others will not see Christ. When we demonstrate the same behavior, the same actions towards one another as everybody else around us, they will not see Christ. The world will see itself. Nothing more, nothing less. And the light of Christ will be hidden from them. So Paul writes to answer a critical question for them and for the church that is found in every place, certainly ours as well. How can we experience unity despite our differences? Uh, first, the Apostle Paul acknowledges what's been torn and pleads with them to mend it. So what he says, our first point, there's just two this morning, and we'll spend the majority of our time, almost all of our time on the first, is that we must acknowledge and mend what's been torn. Look at verse 10 with me once again. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. We could just stop right there. How's that going? Do we all agree? Have we ever seen this within the church? How about the last couple years? Has this demonstrated any of this reality to us? I, I plead with you, I appeal to you that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The same mind, the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Chloe being one of the leaders within the church, certainly someone who is communicating with Paul. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter, or I follow Christ. 
Now again, verse 10 is the main thesis argument of the letter. The whole purpose of this letter is that the Corinthian believers would acknowledge their divisions and come to a place of unity by having the same mind as Christ. In fact, that's exactly where he moves in chapter 2 when he contrasts the mind of Christ with the mind of the world and says to them in chapter 2, verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. You had the mind of the world, now through faith you have the mind of Christ. Christ followers have a new way of thinking that is Christ-centered. It's foreign to the way that we used to think. It's foreign to the ways of the world. Now pay attention to how Paul challenges them. I'm not sure how you submit challenge to your brothers and sisters in faith, but Paul here, he doesn't command them. He makes an appeal. It's a petition. It's an urging. It's a passionate encouragement to his brothers, which also includes brothers and sisters. So he uses loving, familial, relational language to bring up his concerns. He doesn't jump down their throats. He doesn't berate them or belittle them. And the question for me, certainly the challenge for me this week as I was studying this is when you disagree with someone in Christ, when you have truth to speak, when you need to correct and challenge, how do you speak? How do you sound? He speaks truth and love in the name of their mutual Lord, Jesus Christ. He appeals to their common identity, their common authority, their exemplar. And centers their minds and motivations on Jesus. Don't you think we would avoid all kinds of issues and conflict if our motivations centered on Christ? Just think about the last disagreement you had in your family, with a child, with a spouse, with a friend. What does he ask them to do? He asked that all of them, not some of them, recognize the language. He says, all of you, all of them, not a group, Not a specific tribe, not just the core of the church, all of them agree. Is it even possible? Paul thought so, that's why he wrote it. It's possible only when we come under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ with his same mind, his same judgment. Now, a very important word in this letter is the word splits. We see it as divisions, but splits, it actually gets closer to uh, the emphasis that Paul was after. There was, the, their issue here in Corinth was not doctrinal. Their problem was not a theological controversy. It was a power struggle. The word means a tear, like a fishing net that needs mended. It, it has a hole and the fish are getting through. It's, it's been torn, it's been split. It needs mended and put back together. And since Paul refers the church to the church as the body of Christ, think about the weight he is giving this issue. Since he calls the church the body of Christ, he's basically saying when you are tearing the church through your division, it's like you're tearing the limbs of Jesus apart. I mean, such strong metaphorical language of what they're doing spiritually because of all the relational issues that they're having. So instead of splitting apart based on their own affiliations and allegiances, Paul is pleading with them to take all, uh, to all of them take the same side. That's literally what it means, to take the same side. And this is going to hit really close to home. So I'll just warn you now with that. I pray that you'll just kind of stick with me, even if I start to press on some buttons for a minute. But Paul is intentionally using first century political language to make his point. 
He is 100% building from the culture, the political language of first century Greco-Roman culture and applying it in his letter to the Corinthian church. He's saying you support the same side. You support the same party. Is he talking about Roman political parties? No, he is not. But there is a parallel he's making that is relevant to our political allegiances. I'll get to that in a minute. What he is saying is that followers of Jesus all share the same grace and fellowship. That's what comes out in the letter. And if you are under the name of Jesus, then following Jesus means imitating the same self-giving, sacrificial love to the others, the them. The whoever the them is in the us versus them, it's demonstrating that same self-giving, self-sacrificial love to them, even at the cost of yourself, because that is the way of Jesus. Our world needs to see more of this. Our church needs to see more of this. And hear this, Paul is not calling them to uniformity, uh, uniformity and every detail. He's not saying you have to be exactly the same in every detail of doctrine. That's not what the scripture's saying. He's calling them into a non-competitive attitude that properly prioritizes their allegiances. It's not wrong to have allegiances. It's wrong when they're misprioritized, misplaced. What competitive spirit and affiliations caused the power plays here? Like what was the issue he was after? Verses 11 and 12 give us the answer. It says, Paul, Apollos, Peter, and even Jesus, their names are literally being used as political slogans that people were identifying with in order to further their own personal agendas. Allegiances to teachers, it was extreme in the New Testament world. Uh, This letter was written during a time period called the Second Sophist Movement. A sophist was somebody with wisdom, a a wise man. It was someone who was uh, famous for rhetorical argumentation. And so what they would do is they'd gather together disciples who would follow them, who would learn their ways. The disciples would imitate them. And as they imitated them, they would share the same arguments, the same thoughts, and they would actually be paid then, these sophists, for their rhetorical skill. And of course, if you wanted your teacher, if you wanted your sophist or your rabbi to gain fame, then what you would do is you would belittle every other rabbi, every other teacher, every other philosopher. So maybe you've heard of Socrates. He was one of these Jewish rabbis. They were kind of in the same camp. And so what happens is if you belittle somebody else, and do everything you can to slander someone else and diminish their authority, then it increases your leader's authority, and then you increase in honor, in fame, in prestige. If your guy wins, you win. Power and position for your figurehead meant furthering your power and your position within the culture. Does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this have any cultural relevance? You can talk a little bit this morning. You don't have to be completely quiet. Does any of this have any familiarity to our culture and world today? I mean, this is so obvious. It's so obvious to see all the parallel. Of course, this isn't necessarily a bad thing to have allegiances. But like any other allegiance we form, it can grow into something more than it should. And this is so often the issue. It's not that our affiliations are wrong. It's that the place we give them 
in our minds can lead us into the wrong mentality towards one another. And all of a sudden, we start seeing us versus them. Like the sophists around them, the Corinthian Christians created us versus them uh, scenarios, and it was splitting apart the body of Christ. Basically, this is Christian celebrityism. That's what it is. It was personality-driven allegiance. It was placing human association in front of spiritual association. We can imagine the arguments. Somebody says, I'm for Paul. He's the one that led me to Christ. He's the one I'm loyal to. His name is the name that should be lifted up. His, His position, his influence with us, that's the guy that we should be pushing forward. Well, you can be for Paul, but I'm for Apollos. He's the one who inspired our faith. He's, he's more gifted than Paul. He's the one we need to support. And somebody else comes in and says, well, you two can be for Paul and Apollos, but, but I'm with Cephas, with Peter. He's, he's the OG of the ODs, the original disciples. Like, he's the one who is out in front of all these guys. He was the first. He's the prominent Christian in the world. He's my guy. All of you guys are too immature in your faith. Maybe one day you'll grow up and see you're all blind. I'm for Jesus. I don't know who you're for, but I'm for Jesus. And you see how the arguments go. Now, the text hints that the biggest issue was really between Paul and Apollos. And it makes sense because... The book of Acts describes Apollos as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, fervent, it says, in the spirit, passionate for Christ. The translation is that he was gifted, he was anointed, he was was wise, he was passionate. Paul, on the other hand, says his style was to demonstrate weakness, humility, godly fear, and meekness. So Paul condemns all of their fighting over these allegiances and preferences and tells them how their attitudes are incompatible with the message of the cross. The relevance for today, let me just make application first through illustration. I mean, this might as well be a description of modern-day evangelicalism. It might as well just be, I mean, this this is my world. This is our world. We see this everywhere. So often we wonder, why is the church seemingly fairly powerless to transform the culture further for Christ? What is the big difference between the Christians of this first century that were so empowered and you saw such movement across the Roman Empire? Why can't we see and experience that type of revival once again in our culture, in our lifestyles, in our friendships, in our networks? Disunity, if you really come down to it, is probably the number one factor. Tim uh, Dalrymple, the president and CEO of Christianity Today, he recently said, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along the usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations once united in their commitment to Christ are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. In other words, we don't have the same mind. We don't agree. And again, the agreement Paul uh, is after here is not uh, uniformity. It is unity around their allegiance to Christ. He is the glue 
that holds the body together. So let's be honest. Sometimes in our church there is squabbling, there is splits, there is division over the same types of things. I hear it all the time. All you have to do is change the name. I have these conversations with people all the time. I'm in the John MacArthur camp. Or I'm in the Tim Keller camp, or I'm in the John Piper camp, or I'm, I'm in the Matt Chandler camp, or the Andy Stanley camp, or the Al Mohler camp. Pick the name, pick the camp. I, I'm in the Republican Party. I'm a Democrat. You guys are both idiots. To associate yourselves with either, par- either party, that's why I'm an independent. All the same discussions. Maybe the allegiance is to your favorite Woodside preacher, and that becomes the cause of division. Man, I just wish we had this guy more. I, w- I just wish we had that guy more. I'm not really coming until Jeremy gets back. Doing the Woodside tour. Hit all the campuses. Because, you know, my local family, they don't, they don't need me. I'll just avoid them for a couple months. Or maybe it's campus versus campus. Or maybe it's staff versus congregation or private school versus public school versus homeschool or Coke versus Pepsi, whatever. The point is that all of it breaks down to us versus them and it tears us apart. That's the point. Let's acknowledge where this exists in each of our hearts and mend what's been torn. Here's what I'm seeing in the current climate of the church Christians are not allowing room for God's gracious work of sanctification to play itself out with other brothers and sisters in the faith. Sanctification is just a Christianese kind of word that means the work that God does in us through the Holy Spirit to mold and shape each one of our lives so that we better reflect the life, the character of Jesus. What I see so often is Christians creating factions, parties, splits, building us versus them scenarios within the family. The parties are not typically based on the fundamental beliefs of evangelical Christians. It's not typically about the fact that our lives need to be transformed by faith in Christ. It's not about the authority of God's word, it's perfection. Uh, It's not often about the, the need that we have to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel as missionaries to our neighbors and networks. It's not usually about the claim that the sacrifice of Jesus is the only way that humanity can experience redemption. No, we're much more like the Corinthians. Too many are willing to break fellowship, to leave the church and go shopping because we have not extended grace, space, and time to others on their discipleship journey. So the various convictions that we hold, the political convictions, the ethical convictions, the ethnic convictions, educational, economical, immigration issues, public health issues, all the rest of it, those are important. They're important. I'm not belittling them or diminishing them. The problem happens the moment when we turn these critical secondary things into primary things and then decide that everybody has to think the exact same way we do right now. Isn't that the issue? The result is that if I have a thought about any issue and you disagree, instead of giving you grace, space, and time, and maybe even inviting you into a biblical conversation where we can explore the scriptures together and learn from one another, the common response is to label you 
and then put you in a them category. We make quick assumptions without hardly any conversations. Uh, Pastor Chris was newer to our church several years ago as the new senior pastor. I'd been here for quite some time, Uh, just finished my 20th year at the church, and I felt like the first year of my time under his leadership and serving alongside of him was working with families from various campuses who never had a single conversation with him or other leadership, but just made all these assumptions about who he was as a person. Grace, space, time is what we need to grant one another. Relationship and dialogue aren't even given the space to work. So people just leave and go align themselves with a new group that they think will be more homogenous. A group that is right since their other group was all wrong. What's the Augustinian quote? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Remember? Think about this. The disciples of Jesus did not grow in knowledge, wisdom, and Christ-likeness at the same pace. Did they? Did they all grow like at the exact same pace? Like when he called the 12 as they walked through life, they just agreed on everything, every step of their journey. That's not realistic. That's of course not how it was. Did Jesus break the 12 up over their various levels of spiritual maturity? Did he demand that they will all agree on everything at all times? And I get it, because I have the same thoughts that we all do. Sometimes we can't believe that other Christians would hold on to certain, certain convictions and affiliations. We can't believe it. Like, how can they believe this? How can they think that? How can they hold that loyalty? But do we believe that Jesus' method of discipleship was complete uniformity at every stage of their spiritual progress? No. The gospel shows us a very different story. Different people, different backgrounds, different passions, different affiliations, different giftings, different everything, except their mutual conviction of being in Christ and together pursuing the same mind of Christ. This takes grace, space, and time. So how can we experience unity despite our differences? Acknowledge and mend what's been torn. Secondly, and very briefly here this morning, is that we must turn to the one and only Christ. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did not baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Friends, his point is simply to say, Paul didn't die for your sins, did he? Fill in the blank pastor wasn't crucified for you, was he? Fill in the blank politician wasn't the name you were baptized into, was it? Name whatever other name you can think of, friend, spouse, whoever, that is not the name of Jesus Christ, and ask if that name is the name under heaven by which you have been saved. Friend, are you putting your uh, relationships, a human leader, a patron, in the place of Christ and looking to them for hope? Are they the rock of your faith? Are they your heart's first love? So Paul brings up baptism to reinforce his rhetorical question. Who did did you give your allegiance to when you became a Christian? 
And Paul's so upset with their misprioritized and misplaced allegiances uh, that those things are stronger than their loyalties to Christ that he says that he, he, he's relieved that he didn't have more spiritual fruit amongst them so it would build up his camp. He, he's grateful, he says. He says he has one primary crystal clear goal. Preach the gospel. Proclaim Christ and him crucified. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Because there is only one Christ, God's people are not divided. Because there is only one Christ, our allegiances and loyalties do not need to be at war with one another. There is only one Lord worthy of our praise. There is only one name that will cause every knee to bow. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is no competition. There's just one team. The end of our manufactured kingdoms is always the same. It's always destruction and death. There's only one king and there's only one kingdom that rules and reigns in such a way that it leads to life. And it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a heavenly one. Jesus came to show us that kingdom, how it works, how it's led, how to be part of it. There is a very real us versus them war going on. It's not in this room. It's not in this room. It's not with anyone in this room if you're in Christ. That's not the real war that's going on at all. God's kingdom is very much at war, says the Apostle Paul does in the book of Ephesians, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But we know the end has already been written. The war is over. The enemy has already been defeated, right now he's defeated, we're just experiencing the aftershocks. So our focus, our entire aim, the whole of our message, the thing that binds us together is having the mind of Christ wrapped up in his gospel. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon reminds us so powerfully when he says it is the whole business of the whole church to preach the whole gospel to the whole world. So here we are in between two worlds, surrounded by division. Yet regardless of what it appears, spiritually speaking, God's people are not divided. How can we experience unity despite our differences? Acknowledge and mend what's been torn. Turn to the one and only Christ. And then we'll see this scripture fulfilled within our presence, John 13, 34, the new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, the application is so clear. Where does that grace, space, and time, and conversation, and love need extended in your lives, in your relationships? May God give us the grace and courage to live out his way. Father God, thank you for this day and for your word. We give you our lives, Father. They're yours. They've been redeemed for your good purposes, for your good pleasure. So Father, would you lead us into the way of Jesus, the way of unity, the way of Christ. Give us the same mind. That does not mean that we're all identical in every thought and opinion. But Father, it means that we don't 
play the power games of our culture around us. We don't put our affiliations and associations in some kind of misprioritized list where you're no longer at the top. We understand that if we are in Christ together, committed fully to him as the way, the truth, and the life, that, Father, within that reality, within that gospel, within that good news, we can mend every broken thing when we follow his way of self-sacrifice and love. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.